One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than what divides us. Coming up, an interview with Deborah Spark, author of And Then Something Happened. That's the only reason to be writing something critical if you're a creative person, if it's going to sort of advance your own work. We'll be back with Deborah Spark in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven plus years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft, although in the past year, it's been almost 50. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort, and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back. Whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful and diverse to our societal conversation about what it means to be alive today and dig deeper into the art and craft of writing. This effort takes money, time, equipment, more organization than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. 
As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. No please, no ads. In addition, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, a monthly newsletter, and more. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice, as well as on the culture we inhabit. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. And you can donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Thank you so much. My guest today is Deborah Spark, author of five novels, two short story collections, one anthology, and two works of nonfiction. Her latest book is a collection of 12 essays on fiction writing and craft called And Then Something Happened. Spark teaches fiction at Colby College and the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson. She lives in Maine. Her new book, And Then Something Happened, presents more than just advice about fiction or essays that think deeply about craft. We began the discussion with me telling Deborah Spark this. And then something happened. Uh, Essays on fiction writing is what the cover said. But I kind of walked away with more than that. And I'm wondering, I don't want to exactly tell you what yet, but I'm wondering if you (laughs) felt like there was more in there than just talking about craft. I hope so. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, like, the craft book that I most like is um, Charles Baxter's Burning Down the House, and I don't even think that I like it because of what it tells me about writing, although it's interesting on writing, but he always does a cultural critique or a reading of human behavior that I find fascinating, and if I could do that, I would do that, but I can't do that, but I think what I can do is make my essays also personal essays to a degree. So I hope that's what's going through the book, especially since I ordered them more or less as I wrote them. So they start about 10 years ago because I wrote the book over 10 years when my son was young and when my son is older, start with me as a younger mother and teacher and with me as a somewhat older mother and teacher. And then both the preface, And one or two of the, well, the preface, two of the essays um, are really kind of personal essays. And then there's a third essay towards the end that is sort of half personal essay and craft. So that is my thought. I don't know if that's what you were thinking. I think it was definitely personal essay. And some of it is part journalistic interview because you're interviewing some of the authors you're writing about you're not just lifting out of the text itself you're asking them about their motivations or intentions and then part of it is just about human psychology and what what makes us human and what does it mean to be human and how do we how do we see that in the interactions we have in our personal lives and that is the element that might be your personal essay part but then how do we also 
take what we see as human and real authentic behavior and put it into our writing. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm curious about then your sensibility about this, especially because I know you teach at Warren Wilson, which is so structured on just talking about craft. And I'm wondering how you developed this style. Well, actually, way back when, when I first went to teach at Warren Wilson, which was like 25 years ago, I was really terrified of being asked to give a craft lecture in front of all these impressive students and impressive writers. And the first lecture I did was actually on magical realism. And I did so much research that I felt like I could have gotten a PhD. And I thought, I cannot do this again. And then the second time I had to do it, I thought, I do not know anything about this topic. And I picked the topic because someone asked me to write um, an essay for their anthology and assign me the topic, which was triggers in fiction. And I just thought, who knows? How do, how do I talk about that? I'm, I'm the worst person at describing how to get an idea. So I just called up a bunch of writer friends and asked them their idea and their ideas rather. And then I sort of put my essay together, sort of embroidered around their thoughts. So I think that's where the idea of calling writer friends and asking for their thoughts sort of came into it. And then I pretty much did that consistently through time. But the other thing I think is that I always would try to pick something to write about for the lecture I would have to do every year, which is how the essays came about. They all started as lectures, or almost all, not every single one, as lectures um, for the MFA program, um, is that I was always struggling with something in my life or in my work, um, and often those were quite related, which is how I think the personal essay part came in, like the title, and then something happened, was, as you know, since you read the book, but from this thing my son used to do when he was little, of always trying to get me to extend the story by saying, and then something happened when I was ready to finish the story. So I don't know if that answers the question. Well, it sounds like that they were both, and and I mean this in a positive way, they were like self-serving because you were digging into questions you have, but also using them as a tool to teach others. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, you know, one of the things that had always interested about Warren Wilson is that in the third semester there, they asked students to write uh, an essay, a critical, to sort of take a break from their creative work. And the goal of the critical essay is always to help them with something they're struggling with in their own work. And I sort of thought, well, you know, that that's the only reason to be writing something critical if you're a creative person, if it's going to sort of advance your own work. So I was thinking about that, too, like, what is going on in, sort of in my own work or in my own reading. Like sometimes it would be something that was capturing me in my reading and making me think like, why don't I try this? Or why don't I think about this a little harder? I thought I saw two topics that stood out for me or maybe three through all of these essays, even though they're on different things. And I'm wondering if you think there are. No, but I'm really curious what you think. Well, I think the concept of surprise is really embedded in a lot of these essays, not just how you surprise someone, but maybe it's just because life is so unknown and there's so many surprises. You talked about it a little bit about, you know, when you're making things interesting in stories, how can you make them interesting or how can you dig deeper as a writer and find your true footprint sort of? or pen print, so to say, which maybe comes as a surprise when you bring your writing to the next level. So one of them for me was surprise. Another one was humor. That's 
actually nice to hear in some ways because I think those are the things I like best in some ways in writing. I mean, I like emotional honesty a lot in writing, but I love funny work and I love to be surprised um, as a reader. And I would like it's um, I would like to be funny in my work and surprising in my work um, as a writer as as well. You know, I don't. It's always hard to tell if you're doing those things, even if you intend to do those things. In the very beginning, you are talking about and then something happened. And that is an essay that to me also kind of had to do with surprise. And it's you kind of start with this idea that your son was asking you to tell him stories as when he was a kid and that you felt like something always had to happen and that there there should be maybe this element of surprise um, in the book. And I'm curious about what you would say between suspense and surprise? Well, I always think of suspense as sort of uh, more related to tension, maybe, and what's keeping you um, sort of on the edge of your seat or something. But surprise could be something unrelated to plot, right? It could be something formally interesting or uh, a a detail or a description or um, like one thing that always interests me is a book that changes its terms sort of midway. Um, And I'm not sure if I say this in this book, but I always like a book that appears to be about something and then you realize, no, it's going to be about something else, but it's all well integrated. Like um, an example would be Lisa Halliday's Asymmetry, which came out a few years ago, which appears to be a sort of autofiction book, um, but then shifts midway in a super surprising way um, and become something else entirely, but not in a way that sort of disavows what it was originally, just makes it that much more complicated. Yeah. You're talking about surprise in a deeper matter of the craft. You're not talking about, oh my God, it turns out he has a twin sister that we never knew about and she appears in chapter 35. You're talking about the structure. yeah, well, or can be structure. Oh, that, that's often how it interests me. It can be a bunch of things, you know, a bunch of different things. But one thing, like I know I sometimes say to my students and I try to think to myself, especially like if you're in a bind thinking about story, you may think like, okay, I made my story with, you know, my alphabet blocks and I put A, B, and C down. So now I have to figure out D. But sometimes, you know, no, you can just move to Y, you know, and, you know move the story ahead 10 years, move it back. You know, I think of like Virginia Woolf's um, To the Lighthouse, you know, kill off Mrs. Ramsey halfway through. Like, ah, how could you kill off Mrs. Ramsey? But that is sort of a wonderful surprise and speaks, like in that case, to how how we register the death of someone we love who feels like the center of everything. And then all of a sudden she disappears from the book and we have to figure out what's the new center of, of the universe. I was thinking a lot about surprise and suspense when I was in my MFA program at Warren Wilson. And I found this study from the UK and they interviewed maybe like a hundred people, maybe more who some of them they told the ending of the story before and some they didn't. So that's it's it's a little bit more than just the simplicity of talking about surprises, but they found that more people liked what they read better when they knew how it ended. Really? That completely talk about surprise. That completely surprises me. 
And it's funny, I just gave, um, I've been working on a novel, and I gave a draft of it to um, Lance Samantha Tang, who runs the Ira Writers Workshop Program, but also sometimes teaches at Warren Wilson. And she read the first chapter, and at the end of the first chapter of my novel, you do not know if the character lives or dies who's in that first chapter. And she said she jumped right ahead to find out. And I was like, you're kidding me. I would never do that. Like, I would always, you know, want to wait till the, the story gave it to me. But it does seem to me that if people say that, it's because they then enjoy other things, right? There are pleasures beyond the plot. So maybe you enjoy the characterization or, or seeing how it's going to get there or something like that. I was also thinking, when I um, wrote my first book in, in an early draft, uh, the woman who eventually was the editor, she rejected it. And she said, well, the characters, there's someone has a hidden identity in that book. And the reader knows it and the characters don't know it. And she said, it sort of ruins everything. Why don't you let the readers realize it when the characters realize it, which is fairly late in the book. And so I did that. And I, I think it was a stronger book. I think it's still quite a flawed book. But then I remember reading a Susan Miller novel, and I'm actually going to forget the name of the novel, where you, um, the reader does know everything and the characters don't know. So it's doing the very thing that this editor told me not to do. But then I realized there, the surprise isn't a fact. In this case, it's a, an affair that's, that's hidden, but um, how people are going to react to it when they learn it. Or, or how it's going to be revealed if it's ever revealed. So sometimes the surprise is, you know, somewhere other than the actual information or, or whatever ever gets revealed. Um, you know, it's in the method or, or but the human reaction to the surprise. Maybe in some ways, although I don't think it's exactly this, but it could be a gimmick. And I'll explain what I'm thinking. So... For instance, Kevin Barry, the Irish writer, has a short story called Wifey Redux. And when you open, when it opens, it says something, I don't have it right in front of me, along the lines of, you know, there I was with my hands on the boot of the car with the police putting me in handcuffs. How did I get here? And then you go back. And so I loved that story because... I had this clue of where it ended, but I wanted to know exactly how, what transpired to get there. And I kind of like that better than surprise. And I think partly because the world has so many mysteries and it's so, there's no boundaries. And, And I feel this sometimes when I sit down to write, it's like without any idea and you start writing a novel or something, it can go anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. And it's kind of overwhelming. And that yeah, it's too much when you kind of know where you're going, it gives us a sense of comfort, I think, as human beings that, you know, we, we don't feel as we're not looking out to the to the black holes in the universe for maybe the answer could be that far away. And I think, I think there's comfort in that. Yeah, you're saying that makes me actually think of two things. One is there's a, a great Truman Capote story called Children on Their Birthdays, which starts out with a line something like, well, Miss Bobbitt was hit by the you know, 1 p.m. bus yesterday. I'm not really sure what there is to say about it. but And then um, 
you know, that's sort of a shocking thing. And you realize Miss Baba was a little girl. She gets hit and killed by a bus. That's the first line of the sentence. And then he says, you know, to McCapoli wise, I'm not sure what there is to say about it. And then he goes back and starts to tell you about how this creature, this crazy little girl, comes to town, uh, to the small southern town. And he tells you all about Miss Bobbitt. And what's interesting about that story, I've always thought, is you're reading along and reading along, and you get so into the story of this Miss Bobbitt, who whom almost might be a stand-in for Truman Capote, because she's such a, um, uh eccentric little girl, who I think comes to town to put on a play or a show or something. Um, that you forget that she's going to be hit by a bus at the end of the story. So like towards like almost at the um, last page and then a bus, you know, essentially enters and you're like, Oh my God, you know, you, and I always thought that was so brilliant. Like, how does he make you forget he's going to kill a little girl, which is such a, you know, kind of horrible thing to do in a story. And then the other thing it makes me think of is actually my last novel, which you read, um, was called Unknown Caller, and it goes backwards in time, because one of the things that I was always interested in, so you sort of know the end before the beginning, but then it goes forward in time toward, at the very end, is sometimes when you meet someone, um, I think you're interested in their backstory, like how they got to the place they they are. Um, so that can be also a way of giving you the end of the story, and there's still being a story there or a surprise there, presumably. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors into people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. I was just going to say, I think a lot of this comes in with your essay, Raiding the Larder. And, and in this, you're, you're talking about authors who write fiction that looks a lot like their life. They're taking exact things from their life, like Alice Munro, who writes a lot about domestic issues, or Tobias Wolf, who uses elements of his childhood. Um, and you're talking about that. And then you're talking about people who do deep research into the past and are creating worlds that they know nothing about. And you have a quote in there from Jim Shepard who says, you know, you're after the passable illusion um, you know, trying to get as right as you can about this. And I'm wondering if you just could talk a little bit about this essay and maybe what you learned by writing it. Yeah, it's interesting. Since I wrote that essay, I realized there's been this new term out called autofiction, which sort of talks about maybe a more extreme version of what I was talking about, like Alice Monroe. Those stories are clearly not you know, autobiographical, but she's obviously using elements of her life, everything set in Canada and the world she knows. Or I think I mentioned Lori Moore, who, you know, it's 
not autobiography, but again, she's clearly using things from the world she knows. And I think autofiction is probably more like someone like Jenny Offal or someone who it might actually be their life or um, uh, the guy who wrote the Patrick Melrose novels where I think he's calling it fiction, but it pretty much is his life. Um, and it's sort of the, the extremes of writing just out of experience versus writing purely out of your imagination have always interested me, you know, sort of from the beginning. I'm partially because I think I need always a hook of the real to write anything. I just can't fabricate out of my head, which may be why I was such a bad storyteller for my son, because I just had to fabricate entirely out of my head. And that was such a challenge for me. But I also um, was thinking when I wrote that essay, I actually didn't start thinking about research so much, but I was thinking about how much I love books where I really learn something, not in a academic sense, but, you know, something entirely new is opened up to me. So I think one of the books I talked about there was by a man named David Bismogus. I'm not even going to be able to pronounce his name, but he's talking about um, some people who are migrating to the United States. And I'm not even going to remember from what country. It's been so long since I read it. But I just loved how he sort of gave me a world I would never have known about. And I felt like when I was through, like I knew about it and I felt like he knew about it. He had told me some interesting things. So my world got bigger or sort of illuminated in a, in a way. So I was thinking more about that initially. And then it sort of, sort of moved into this other thing. I think because I read a, a novel I couldn't stand where the person had done so much research and just thrown it all in the book. And it was such a bore. And I was thinking, well, here's a ton of information and I can't stand it. Um, so I was thinking about that balance, like how do you inform and give a world without boring your reader to tears because, you know, every little interesting fact that you learned, you feel like putting in the novel, even though it's completely blocking down the story and, and maybe not as interesting to the reader as it is to the person who discovered the fact. One thing that has been fun for me in my life is to use my writing as an excuse to learn something about what I didn't what I don't know. So in this book that I think I just finished, I may still be revising, I, I did a lot of research and interviewed a lot of people um, here in Maine. Normally, I've sort of gone elsewhere. And it was pretty um, interesting to me. I mean, I felt like I couldn't write any of the characters unless I knew them better. And in one case, I, I sort of must have interviewed 40 people just to create one character. But then I felt like when I'd created him I knew I'd done it really knowing this world I, I, I didn't know at all um, and I like I like doing that kind of research it's fun for me you know meeting people and talking to them and um, and I feel like for anyone who writes you know whether you publish or not it's a chance to make your world a little bigger to go a place you couldn't otherwise go like I don't can't remember if I put this in one of the essays but I was in Copenhagen doing some research for my previous novel and I was interviewing young filmmakers and I was with this young woman and I would never say this otherwise, but I was like, will you take me to your apartment? I want to see what the inside of it looks like because I wanted to know. And I also said it to a young man, which I also, I think would only do because I was an older woman. And I thought, I'm not particularly brave, but this sort of gives me a chance to be a little braver than I otherwise would be. Um, and I, I like, I like that part of the writing life. There's so much of part of the writing life that's a big old drag, so, but I like that part of it. Years ago, I saw a conversation. It's actually online 
if you search for it, between Andrew, Sean Greer, and Michael Shaban. And it took place here here in Aspen. And I don't remember the details. It was so long ago. But basically, Michael Shaban was saying that he had written a, a book that he just had spent years on and was ready to throw away. And he was stuck and he was trying and trying and trying and he couldn't figure it out. And he was kind of at this one place where he was so stuck and he, he wrote like an email to Salman Rushdie and Salman Rushdie wrote him back and said, like, you just have to like find the answer. I could be butchering this story, but I, the point I have, right. <laughs> and so he went out to like Seven Eleven, and he was standing in line and someone said something in line that clicked for him and sort of solved his problem. And his point was that when you're doing the work and you're paying attention to the universe, it kind of provides for you. And there was something that you yeah. said in the very beginning of our interview. I think we were talking about, I don't know if it was being human or figuring that out. I can't even remember, but that if you are paying attention and you're in the midst of your work, then you're seeing the world through the lens of what you're working on. Yeah. I remember Lily King saying to me, and I thought, Oh my God, I feel this way too. Is that when she was like in a book, like working on it, everything that was going on fed into it. And I thought, thought that is it. And that's so pleasurable when you're in there and like, Oh yes, yes, yes. Or, or you're out driving. I often find like when I'm stuck, I go driving and then I'm not thinking about it and something pops in, um, which I think is so deeply pleasurable. And it's also why like I'm not in a project right now. And it's why I hate not being in a project. It's like, it's harder for me to, I don't know. I think I want to be collecting things and putting things together and having it feed something. Um, and I'm not doing that at the moment. But I also think this is what I thought you were going to say, although you obviously that anecdote went a different direction. I remember um, actually uh, sitting with Mary Carr long before she became famous and she was um, more more known as a poet or before she wrote her memoirs. And I don't know why she was saying this to me. We're sitting at her kitchen table and she said, all the poems I'm ever going to write are lined up in front of me. And the way they go is like this, bad poem, bad poem, good poem, good poem, bad poem good poem, bad poem, bad poem. And she said, and the thing is, I can't write the good poems without writing the bad poems. And I, I love that, you know, as a way of also talking about the process. What I thought you were going to say is that Shabon was going to abandon the book and that someone encouraged him not to abandon the book and to stick with it. And I do think sometimes, like sometimes you do have to abandon books, which feels so terrible because it's, you know, years of your life. That's just, I mean, if it's a novel or a long project um, and that sometimes you, you write through something and, and do put it aside. Um, but it's much better, obviously, if you have the Seven Eleven thing, the, the thing that crystallizes it and then you can figure it out. Plus, when you're working, you don't know which is going to happen, right? Is this the thing that I'm going to have to put aside after I spent five years on it? Um, yeah, and you don't know where that mo moment of magic might happen. Like I took a class with Ron Carlson once and he said, you know, usually that moment for him happens when he's writing at like the sixth hour in the chair where he, he wants to do everything in his power to get up and he doesn't like every force in yeah, the universe is telling him to abandon the project. And then when he stays, something happens. That's interesting. But 
for this book, it was much discredited because the author, I think he plagiarized himself and he made up some facts by, I think his name's Jonah Lehrer or something like that, but it was called Imagine, Imagination, something like that. I mean, he did all these unethical journalistic things, but it was really, it was, it was too bad because the part that was ethical was really interesting. And one of the things he talked about is how the creative mind works. And I, I don't remember the exact details, but he explained why, why there's this phenomenon of, like if you're working on something creative and you actually get out of the chair, and for me it would be like if I go drive on an errand or if I would go like run or do some sort of exercise, that suddenly it pops into your head what you want. Like why putting your conscious brain elsewhere gives the sort of subconscious a chance to work on it and then sort of bring it over to the conscious mind. And he even had a sort of scientific explanation, which I sort of found fascinating. And I certainly heard other writers say that, that there's this thing when you're, you're not, you're not doing what Ron Carlson says. You're not letting, you know, forcing the conscious mind to stay with it, but you sort of leave and then, you know, the subconscious does its work, even though you think it's, it's elsewhere. So I want to get back to to your book. There is one essay in there that I think is very different than all of the others, and I wanted to talk about it. Do you know which one I, you think I'm talking about? Yes, the act of uh, um, the, my book, the one that's about um, the murder, um, the dangerous act of writing, I assume. Yes, and I'm wondering if you yeah. could talk about it. I, it was probably my favorite and I'm not exactly sure why, but can you tell us a little bit about what it's about and writing it and why you fit this sure. in? Yeah, well, I know that technically it doesn't fit in, and I think the editor did too. But I, So every single essay in the book, with the exception of the preface and the first essay, and the essay you're referring to, I wrote as lectures for Warren Wilson, and I turned them into essays. Um, and published them in most often either a living literary magazine or the AWP Writers Chronicle. Um, in the case of this essay, um, there was this horrible event um, in in well, I shouldn't say my life. A friend of mine who who was a writer um, uh, murdered his fiance, and I was so horrified by it. And he was such a nice guy, as was she, um, and I was also horrified by the connection with writing, um, and I was struck, well, when it happened, so this man was schizophrenic, he, I'd gone to college with him, he'd had a schizophrenic break after college, but then he had really worked with apparently a brilliant therapist in New York, and very good care, and really the love of his his family, especially his father, but all of, all of his family, and sort of got himself more or less in shape to go to Yale Law School, and I did go to Yale Law School and um, graduated, and um, his story was so um, uh, sort of fantastic in some ways. He sort of conquered schizophrenia to be this big success that there was a huge article in the New York Times about him, and then uh, Ron Howard bought his life story for the movies. Brad Pitt was going to play him, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he got a huge agent uh, to sell this memoir based on, I think, just 30 pages or maybe more that he had written about his life. Um, and then when he started to write the book, um, at least as I understand it, he, he went off. He was having 
was struggling to write while on the drugs. Um, and I think he went off his drugs so he could write, and he completely descended into um, his illness. And his uh, fiance went over to his house that day because she was worried about him, and he killed her. Um, he, and his mother actually called because she was also worried and, you know, wanted to know how he was. And he obviously seemed off. And he she said, well, put Carrie on the phone. And he said, I can't, I just killed her, at which point she, you know, she called the police. And it was just a horrible, horrible story. But what struck me about it, or among the things that struck me about it, is that when he first, first went into the psychiatric hospital, he was forbidden from writing. And the only other person I knew who was forbidden from writing when, when they went in to get psychiatric treatment or into a hospital was David Foster Wallace. And I was really struck by that prescription. Like, why would you tell someone they cannot write? I often think we think of accessing our creative side as good for us, you know. And in fact, you know, the therapeutic benefits of writing seem to be sort of uh, touted here and there. And I just wondered what the prescription was about. So in some ways, the essay is looking at that, whether creativity, letting yourself right, could actually be dangerous for you um, or someone else, as, as, is, as the case here. And it, in the case of this story, I thought about it for a long time after it happened, as, as did everyone I knew who knew him, because he was wonderful. Um, and then, of course, in all the years of thinking about it, um, another person died, which was David Foster Wallace, committed suicide. And not in in some ways, in all that different circumstances, insofar as that he too had gone off his medicine, they had very different diseases. One was a schizophrenic, one struggled with depression. Um, but it seemed to me there were a lot of parallels in the story. And in both cases, you know, so horrific, so upsetting um, that I wondered if writing could be bad for you, if, if there are certain people who should not write. Because at first, I remember when David was told that, you know, it seemed like, oh, how stupid these people are at McLean's. That's ridiculous. Of course he should write. He's a genius, you know. And then he won a MacArthur Award, and, you know, he wrote all the things he's well known for. I mean, he had written, I think, two books prior to going into the hospital. But um, in the case of Michael, at first, there was the sense, I think, that his characters were quite literally talking to him, like they were in the grass. And, you know, when schizophrenic people somehow speak of voices, this is how it was manifesting for him that his characters were talking to him. Winded, but the um, events really upset me, and I wanted to explore them. There is a, another essay in here called Jump Already that I found really interesting. And it was about, you were sort of asking writers, when was the moment they became themselves? Like, what story or novel did they write that they sort of felt maybe just most in tune with who they are or found their voice that they're known for or just like blossomed into something that they realized was their niche? And I'm wondering, yeah. what what made you ask this question? And what did you maybe, did you discover any overall truths about people's discoveries? Um, I'm not sure I can answer the last question. I have to think about it a little hard, harder, but I do know what made me write it, which was that I um, had seen a show by a, a, a painter named Marie H 
Hantman, Hantman, can't remember, uh, a show in Portland Art Museum where it was a retrospective. So you could see the whole of the man's work from beginning to end. And what you saw was something I thought I had seen in certain writers where the early work is really derivative. The person is just painting like their teachers. And I feel like I did that. My, my first novel, I was trying to be Gabriel Garcia Marquez because I loved 100 Years of Solitude. So the, the person is writing like the book they most love or or, or the, the painter they most love. And then um, uh, this artist starts, you know, he has all these periods and stages in his life and he's a really good painter, but there's one moment it seemed like, oh, now he's painting only the kind of thing that he would paint. And if you looked at other artists' career, like the, the most, the easiest example for me to give is Roscoe, you know, his work looks really different than what you think of as a Roscoe um, for a good stretch of his career. Like, in fact, when I gave that as a lecture, what I found fun is I got all these um, slides and I just, I made me like, 50. And I projected one after the other. And I said, shout out when you know who this painter is. So I'm projecting them, projecting them, projecting them. And at a certain point, like people are guessing all these things, they're all wrong. At a certain point, everyone says Roscoe, because there's a certain point, it's him, you know, everyone knows what those look like. And I did the same thing with Edward Hopper. And the same thing happens. But with Edward Hopper, he gets there much quicker. Like there's a few things that don't look like Edward Hopper. And then it all looks like Edward Hopper. And I was thinking about this thing of, you know, having a distinct style that is, is yours and no one else's. And I was thinking about it sort of in general, but also because my husband, who's an abstract painter, I thought had gotten in a little bit of a rut where he was sort of painting the same thing over and over again. And I was thinking sometimes of writers, even writers I admire, who it seems to me go back and back into the same thing. And I think, well, maybe they should just try to write something else. And they, and they don't, you know. Um, and you could even say that of Mar Alison Rowe. And obviously she shouldn't write something else in, in some ways because she's so true to herself. But I was thinking, I guess, of writers who I thought maybe they needed to progress forward to do their most interesting work. And, you know, I'm wondering about myself, although I'm, it's very hard, obviously, to look at yourself that way. And, the, and then in terms of the writers, I was thinking about, I was thinking about Andrea Barrett, who, when she started embracing, I think, her scientific training and her interest in history, really changed as a writer. Before she wrote, you know, very good books, but they could have been anyone else's book. And also Joan Silver, although I think Joan's work was always distinctive to her, but she sort of had this formal move later in her career where she started writing um, something that's somewhere between the novel and a story cycle um, that I think is distinctive to her um, and, and makes you think, you know, in the same way you go, oh, Roscoe, you go, oh, Joan Silver or, or you know, any of a number of authors where, you know, some authors you pick up in one page, you're like, oh, this is so-and-so um, because the work is so themselves as opposed to you know, picking something up and it, it could be good, but it also could be anybody. And you talk to some of these authors, like did, did any of them, and it doesn't even have to be a universal theme that they all said that was similar, but did you find something was, that they said for, that they noticed? Yes. And it was different for the, each person I interviewed with Joan Wickersham. For her, it was a decision about form, she said. And she described how that worked both with um, her, she had a very good first novel, but 
maybe didn't get as much you know attention as I think it deserved. But then a really sort of breakout memoir that she had written um, as a straightforward memoir, written as a novel, and then she redid it as um, an index. Her her father had you know horribly enough committed suicide. And she wrote a book eventually called The Suicide Index, where she breaks down the story uh, sort of almost into an index of suicide, as if suicide has these different categories. And then when she wrote her next book, which was a short story collection, she also made a formal decision, which was to have everything turn, have like six or seven stories, all that use the same phrase, um, the news from Spain. And actually right now, last time I talked to her, She's working on something really interesting and, again, seems like a formal, unusual approach that has to do with some shift she learned about that's in a big room in Sweden. And I forget the details, and she's collaborating with a photographer on it. But, again, it seemed that, like, to figure out how she was going to write it, she had to figure out something formal. Well, with Joan Silber, I think she said um, – the way she got into it is partially she just wrote something as a lark because she went through a long period where she couldn't publish anything. And she, she, she says, quote, unquote, she took a flyer on a certain kind of story. But she also felt that two things sort of had changed her approach to writing. One was a different sense of time just for being an older person um, and also her study of Buddhism. Um, although I don't exactly remember what it was about her study of Buddhism that changed her avenue into the work. I think she said she's sort of like a miniaturist by nature, but wanted to compress a lot of life into it. So, you know, how she was going to sort of, I don't know, accordion time in her work. That's not the word she would use, but I think that is sort of what she does. And then the last essay is extremely contemporary. Um, you know, we're just starting to see writing come out um, post-COVID world, and, and you're writing about COVID and, and the, what's going on in politics and trying to figure out, like, do we look at things straight on or do we look at them sideways? And you look at some fiction and poetry from the past and how people sort of address end times, um, narratives, and you're looking at what um, some people have, have had to say about it. You talk about Olga, do you know how to say her last name? Or a Chuck? I don't know how to pronounce it. Okay, so she won the but Nobel. She's the woman who won the Nobel Prize in 2019. Yeah, Olga Tokarczuk said, "How I we think, think about right. the world, and perhaps even more importantly, how we narrate it, have a massive significance. A thing that happens and is not told ceases to exist and perishes." Um, it goes on a little bit, but I'm just curious about. You know how you approach writing writing this, and if you came to any of your own conclusions. Yeah, I think I did, but not entirely about terms my particular art, but maybe art in general. I actually started writing that before COVID, and mostly because I I think so much about um, mass shootings and the extinction of the environment and what the world will be like, or if it will be here for my nieces and my son and the next generation, and have a lot of panic about that. So I actually started writing it even before COVID. Um, and then of course, COVID came and it just seemed to feed into what I was writing about, although not in the pleasurable way of really because of a king or something, because I wish it didn't happen, obviously. But, um, and as I say in the essay, I had been in Paris 
with a group of other artists uh, studying the 1920s, which was a moment when artists felt that art needed to change the old way of treating um, experience just wouldn't work after the huge tragedy of the number of people who had died in World War One. And then I had read this Olga Tokarczuk Nobel Prize essay where I felt like she was saying the same thing, that we need a new way of, of narrating or telling our stories because the world has changed so dramatically. And I think in some ways she was talking, you know, about the internet and the proliferation of stories, but also that the way we tell stories now, which really happened or started to change around World War One, is with what she calls a, a proliferation of first-person narratives. You know, you speak from the eye, and you may hope, you know, your story relates to someone else, but it, it's the eye. And I think she was saying, no, we need to be more universal because we were connected. Um, and I was wondering for myself, maybe art needs to change. How can art change? How can writing change? Can it be something other than it was. And I had met someone in Paris who suggested maybe a new way of thinking about narrative. And I also had a friend, uh, an environmental artist, who was thinking about art in a new way. Um, but I also think, like, we're talking on the day after uh, Trump put his tweets, you know, don't be afraid of COVID and all his, you know, demented things he says. And obviously, he's putting out a story, which is crazy. <laughs> But unless we contradict it with multiple other stories, obviously his story is going to um, you know, win the day, even as crazy as it is, as, as illogical as how, how, how much it doesn't relate to reality. And over the summer, actually, again, when I was teaching at Warren Wilson, there was a, a poet named Kava Akbar who was talking a little about what poetry could do in the world. And he said, no, I'm not going to write one poem and there goes climate change. But, and I'm not sure if he said this or actually maybe I said that, but if we all write poems, like if we all start putting our stories and our way of perceiving things into the world, then presumably we're going to do what August is sort of tasking us to do. I think, you know, put the, take control of the narrative, you know, and right now I feel like the narrative has gone so wonky, not only in this country, but in the world in, in general. Um, and the story is one way to do that. But I also think something else, it just can't be just narrative. I think something else has to happen and it may be related um, to actual physical action. The, the stories that I was interested in or artistic works that I was really interested in that I was exposed to before COVID were not in any way traditional. They had some aspect of experiential performance art as a way of sort of conveying their meaning. And although I can't imagine myself doing that, I wanted to think if there's another way I can think about narrative instead of the way I've been thinking about it because the world is so troubling. So for me, I, I was... I end more on a question, like, what can we do? Um, in the same way, I think we're all thinking about social justice now, right? Um, even if you've always thought you thought about social justice, and I always thought I did, I feel like, okay, something has to change now. I mean, we've always said it, like, after all, the black men were murdered. Something has to change. But now I feel like now is the moment. It has to start to happen. Uh, what troubles me both in art, I would say, in life is I don't see a visionary person out there who's going to get us there. I mean, I see 
liberals, but I don't see the visionary sort of FDR person who's going to move us forward or the Martin Luther King or whatever it is. And I think in art, I mean, I see so many people I'm impressed with, but I don't know what will move us sort of forward to make the world better. Um, But I'd like to see it. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Yeah, you know, instead of as a writer in general, I thought I would read something that influenced me as a writer about craft, you know, the the essays in this book as opposed to my fiction. And I can't say that I do what this writer does, um, but I like it. And this is um, Charles Baxter's Burning Down the House, which I already mentioned. And these are um, two paragraphs that I, I remember reading them and I loved them because Um, Well, actually, I'll read it, and then I'll say why I loved it. Um, So this is Charles Baxter in an essay about melodrama. I once had a rumpled and messy friend who was a colleague where I worked. The crucial word here is once. Most offices have someone around like this person. He was, for a time, unfailingly helpful to young faculty members. He invited them for dinner, a great raconteur and gourmet. He could cook and talk simultaneously and brilliantly. He loved to help out people who were in a weak position. In this role, he was lovable. When they established themselves, when they no longer depended on him, he dropped them. He invented imaginary crimes that they had committed and wouldn't speak to them and would pass them in the hallways without nodding. He insisted on betrayal. He went away for a year, and when he came back, he was speaking to almost no one. Everyone had betrayed him, it seemed. Because there was no easy accounting for his behavior, his ex-friends couldn't stop talking about him. They would apologize sheepishly for what they were going to do and then launch into some new inadequate theory. After a while, my colleagues simply said he was evil, on a very modest scale, of course, compared to the villains of our climate. But this strategy permitted them to close the subject and move on to other field of office politics. What I like about this is it's so smart about people and so observant and also takes this sort of analysis of the individual and makes it kind of universal. We all know people like this. And I do know like a person like this. And this is interesting to me, both in terms of my personal experience and the world in general. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I just thought I'd read the first two paragraphs of the book. I had really a lot of trouble thinking about how to write a preface for this book, just because I wrote the essays over such a long time. And I was a little uncomfortable because I was very personal in it. But Somehow that seemed right, so I, this is the, the opening to the book. My uncle was in the operating room when he mentioned me, apropos of what, I don't know, to a fellow surgeon. The younger colleague, new to the hospital, perked up. Your niece is a writer, he asked. Could I meet her? My uncle phoned to relate this, allowing that the man was handsome. All the unattached nurses had a crush on him. Did I mind? I minded not at all, single as I was, and in my 20s, and wishing for life to grant me a love interest of the sweep me off my feet and then happily accompany me until death, until death variety. John, I'll call him that, though I've long since forgotten his actual name, arranged to meet me at a restaurant in Cambridge's swanky Charles Hotel. He actually was handsome, a Dennis Quaid lookalike back when Dennis Quaid was disarmingly sexy. We sat at a table and started to talk and talk and talk, a heady back and forth. I can't remember the details, only that books were involved in the Caribbean, where he had traveled and where I had set my first novel. Long before I wrote any of the essays in this book or even thought to write about writing, I like to talk about craft, what works, what doesn't, how fiction writers do what they do. 
John was talking more about his literary tastes, of course. Still, I imagined a connection, a surgeon after all, someone who quite literally looks into things, see how they function, and corrects them when they don't. Revision. My father and uncle were both doctors, so I knew a narrative was integral to the job. What was a case study but a story? And why did you choose that? Just for the reason I said before, I took me a long time to figure out how I was going to start the book. Um, and it, I think I tried a bunch of different things, read other people's introductions to craft books, and then I sort of used this personal story to sort of get into the reasons I'd, I'd written the book. Um, but like I said, it was a little uncomfortable. It goes on and gets more personal because this story with um, this person turned out very, very bizarre in the end. So um, I find it a little hard to write because it was self-revealing in a way that I'm not entirely comfortable with, but maybe in a way is kind of true to who I am. Where do you write? Um, Now in my office, which is off my um, kitchen in my house in Maine. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, right now, I'm not writing very well because I'm so busy teaching. So I'm trying to get to writing. But when I am writing well, um, I do what a lot of people do. Like I exercise like right now because it's sunny. I've been going running Um, or, you know, go for walks or something like that. Or I read. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um. Well, I read bits of my work sometimes to my husband, but his feedback is more mostly like, okay, no, kind of thing. Not He's not a, a writer or a reader much himself, so it's more just to get his general, I don't know, sense of it. And then I have two dear friends, uh, Gail Donovan, who's uh, now writing mostly middle grade books, and Elizabeth Searle, who writes in a lot of formats, and we have a, a small writer's group. How have you dealt with rejection? Badly. <laughs> very, very badly. <laughs> Does anyone ever say they deal with it well? That's what I wonder. And what is your favorite word? Today, which is, um, what, October something, 220. My favorite word is vote. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mitzi. This was really nice. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Deborah Spark, author of And Then Something Happened. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Charles Baxter, an author that Deborah mentions during this show. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Bill Clegg, Susan Minot, and Jonathan Lethem. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.